And this is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is March 4th, 2001. And this is part two of the discussion on conditional reasoning, reasoning in general, and how arguments are structured on the LSAT with my guests, Keith Seiska and Jake Feldman. Hey, John. Well, John, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Oh, continuing on. It's incredibly useful on logic games because on logic games, it is divorced from re reality. There are no actual situations, or at least those situations aren't critical to being able to execute the game. And in situations in which conditional logic is necessary and being able to execute conditions is necessary, you need to understand how it works and how contrapositives work. Um, on LR, there are limited situations in which I think it's necessary. Um, I, I think you're right that parallel reasoning questions, there are one or two per test in which they are asking you to execute a very formal conditional approach and connect the, con connect the dots as they have. Yeah, or conditional proof them. often. Yeah, conditional proof or, or, a, or a flawed conditional proof, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes they do it in a flawed way, but you need to be able to follow that path perfectly. But that's okay. usually, those are usually the only necessary times for it. Sometimes it can work in other situations, but it's not the only way to do it. It's, it's, it's not a necessity. Uh, and oftentimes it makes it more complex rather than less. Well, it strikes me that um, the, the very greatest utility uh, coming from this, uh, I think, excessively formal analysis of this stuff is actually in the world of LSAT teaching. You know, in the sense that it provides a, uh, a mechanism, you know, a vehicle for, uh, you know, being able to explain, you know, why C is a worse answer than B or something like that. But, you know, again, I'm going to keep coming back to this point repetitively forever, is that the key to doing well in the LSAT is to understand what you're being told. In, the, in these questions, right? And to not overread them, you know, to not underread them. I mean, I think we've had some discussion in our last chat about, about that as an issue. Yeah. Um, you know, also, I mean, to repeat a very simple point that's coming out of this conversation is that the inclusion of these words, uh, you know, I see people talk about, for example, necessary condition indicators or, you know, this type of stuff uh, is absolutely no guarantee of, 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 what, of what the stuff means in context. You would agree right. with that? 100%. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that, and they create confusing constructs intentionally. They will use no, the phrase if. <laughs> I mean, I find them all the time. I find these indicator words used in ways where they're a letter to complain about that Keith? <laughs> i want them to do it what are you talking about i write them uh, love letters for it <laughs> yeah yeah no no it, it, it's 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 it's, abso it's absolutely right and look th this goes back to your point about writing the book right that ultimately the 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 way that the the books the test prep materials are constructed is we've got to justify why it is that our system and our book is comprehensive. Yeah, so we're going to tell you all the, all the things to look for and all of the so that it feels like their students are learning something. Here's a group of things to learn. Go learn them, and then you're going to be better. 
well, and when we tell you know, them, I, I want to tell you that uh, you know, as sort of a, a passive observer of this stuff, uh, you know, when I look at what's going on here, I have the feeling that a lot of this is off on some sort of special interest project that. You know, I mean, you know, do anything other than read and try to understand, you know, the, the point of the material, right? True. Yeah. You know, which, which is a gigantic problem. Um, okay. So what would you, so when somebody comes to you and says, uh, I'm having trouble with conditional statements, what's your, what's your answer to that? I think step one is ask them. Yeah, I I mean, there are some questions asked first, right? Like, do you understand that the contrapositive is a valid statement? And do you like do you like the word contrapositive? I always found that kind of language really upsets people. (sighs) We got to call it something. I mean, what uh, about bad backwards reasoning? You know, something that's a little more descriptive of what's going on. Yeah, that it's or, interesting. No, Maybe kind of so. Good backwards reasoning. Good backwards reasoning. Yeah, sorry. good backwards good reasoning. Uh, you know, I think I think the problem is that that so much of the test prep material out in the world has pervaded their 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 thought processes already. It's rare that I get somebody that is completely raw clay, that has been exposed to nothing. So they've already got the terminology in there. They may not understand it, but they've got it. I've heard of this thing called contrapositive and necessary condition and sufficient condition. I've got to work with them, right? I can't tell them we'll ignore that ignore that word because it's it's a dumb word and and it's going to confuse you because I'm not the only resource they're going to look at. They're going to go look at other things. They're going to go read other people's explanations. They're going to see that language out there. We might as well look. What do you think of that? Let, let's talk about that. Um, the propensity to, you know, scour the world for every interpretation of every <laughs> question. I mean, do you, do you think this is good or bad or? Horrible. It's horrible. Horrible. You, horrible. You should, you should see the smoke coming out of Keith's ears right now. I, I have my students, they're like, Keith, tell me what resources to go by. And I'm like, let's start with prep test 60. And they're like, no, no, I don't think I know how to do prep test 60. And I'm like, I know you don't. And you're never going to know if all you want to do is go read books all day. Let's start with prep test 60. It's like learning how to do a jump shot. Why don't you try one and I'll see what you're doing wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. You can't learn to play tennis by watching Serena Williams. It's, I mean, it's lovely to watch. That's great. And you get to see what it's like to, to, to be good at tennis, but you'll never be good at tennis just by watching her. Never going to happen. Triple review is all about getting into the test, determining what you're doing wrong. And then if there's a resource out there that helps you understand that very narrow aspect of the test, wonderful. But don't fix things that aren't broken and don't try to overindulge in in complexity when you don't need it. I find a lot of my students can read and interpret conditional statements with none of this crap. And I, I, I encourage them to do it until we reach the end of the road and they finally find a conditional statement that they can't interpret. Then we say, okay, let's go back and fill in some fundamentals for that one, not for every single conditional in the world. Yeah. Yeah, the the natural understanding of the language, a, a student's natural understanding. I mean, we're not going to undo twenty years of language acquisition right. in six months or a year, and we don't want to. <laughs> no, why would we? Why Some would of that's we? Good. 
Yeah, for sure. If they're at this point, chances are they've they've done some good things intellectually and academically, and they and that's gotten them to where they are. Let's lean in, lean into their natural intellectual athleticism, and and make best use of it. I I liken this to trying to understand a word that you don't know in Shakespeare by going and reading some secondary resources interpretation of Hamlet. You don't need all of that. Just go look up the word, figure out what the word is, and then go continue to read the play. You don't get to go and, and analyze somebody else's analysis until you've read the play and understand what it's about from your own perspective. Otherwise, you're just absorbing other people's perspectives. You know, I get the feeling listening to you guys talk that you think there are actually some forms of LSAT preparation that could be harmful. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, when people graft these, these laborious structures onto their timed approach, it is absolutely harmful. You can use these as models to think through deep conceptual problems, but you don't have time to diagram every conditional on an LR section. I don't know anyone who does have time to do that. Yeah, I used to try to when I when I first started teaching, and it it was too much. I couldn't get through the section. I was trying to be super formal, super strict, so that I could apply the stricture to my students. It didn't work. Um, well, I, yeah, I, because... yeah, yeah. I, no, mean, no, I was going to say the, um... the 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 form the form of LSAT prep for me that I think is the most harmful is the one that tries to distill the test into lists and categories of types and language that a forces a chart. student. Yeah, a big, a huge, but, but it's not even as helpful as a flow chart. Cause at least a flow chart, you start from one place, right. And it, and it, and you, and you have inertia, right. There's, there's momentum down the thing. Right. And, and, and maybe there's, there's force pushing you as well. In this case, you go to some of these resources, they say, well, there are, um, seven game types, and there are 15 LR type questions, and there are nine types of reading passages. And the student's first job, they think, is to do categorization. And then it's recall of all of the techniques that only apply to that one category of question. And they spend all of this time when they're all the same. It's all the same thing with very subtle differences at the end. But they expend all this effort trying to fit it into a pocket. And I will say the one, the you know, the the one resource that I appreciate that said the opposite when I read it the first time was Mike Kim's LSAT trainer. And in his first chapter or two, he says, you know, I really want to serve as a corrective for this because if you really went down as granular as you could and and broke down every question into its subcategory and subcategory, you would have a hundred question types on a test out of a hundred questions. And it just wouldn't be useful to you anymore. It would become absurd. You have to stop doing that. Well, you have to start using your skills. You stop doing that. But to put it another way, in my experience, every second you spend trying to categorize a question is a second you're not spending in reading and understanding what you're being told. And, you know, if you're not clear on what you're being told, or at the very least focusing on trying to discern that, you're headed for big trouble. Not little yeah. trouble, but big trouble. Yeah. And this, by the way, is why, you know, one of, the, one of the things that frustrates people is, oh, my God, I spent eight months prepping for the LSAT, and my roommate, 
you know, did a couple of tests the week before and he or she got 178 and I only got 158. Where's the justice in the world? And the answer is the 178 score didn't know enough to get confused. Yeah, or yeah. prepped in other ways. Uh, you know, I mean, there are, are scholastic activities you can do as a lifestyle that will prep you for the LSAT for years before you even think about the exam. You know, the, the most brilliant thing I ever read about the LSAT was in a power score book. And it said that if you really want to think about the similarities between the questions, you could summarize it like this. Every question on the LSAT is an inference question. And then the power score book proceeded to break down the questions into 20 different types. And I became exasperated really quickly. I thought it was brilliant to understand that the entire test is about deductive reasoning and that your ability to draw inferences is crucial to every question, not just inference questions. To me, that was revolutionary. And I'd been tutoring the LSAT for over a decade when I read that. Yeah. I think they're I think they're dead on because either you 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 can you either you can draw the inference right and you can make the deduction right. or this is the inference I want to make but it's not there. there right yeah how do we get there or That's how it. do we prevent that inference from being drawn sure sure but it all comes down to the same to the same idea yeah and how then do it's we just a matter inferences? of yeah, it, it, then it's just a matter of saying, like, you know, I, I, I'm not looking at the entirety of the Mona Lisa and seeing why it's different from the entirety uh, of, of a different painting. Instead, I'm seeing the brushstrokes and I'm seeing the colors and I'm seeing how it's all the same thing. Well, you know, I thought that a, a very insightful comment that one or both of you made in our last chat was that, you know, the key here is to focus on how all of these things are the same rather than on how they're different. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I see the test in a very simple-minded way. It's about reading and reasoning, and you got to understand first what it is you're reading and then reason with it, basically. Well, if, you, if we want to go back to this idea of conditionality, right, if, we, if we're seeing how all things are the same and all things are deductions, if water boils, it evaporates is a deduction that's valid based on the definition of, of boiling and the definition of evaporation, right? But if Keith st had studied more, he would have performed better. Well, there are some missing pieces there. And so you can't quite make that deduction without further information because it's not definitional. Well, it's not a conditional, you know. It's not a, con because it's not a conditional. Yeah, it's masquerading as a conditional. It's saying, buddy, buddy, I'm a conditional. When it's you know, you know, I like the language you're using there because the, what I've learned through this study of conditionals, John, is that English grammar is conditional. The subject of a sentence, what the sentence is telling you is that the subject is sufficient to know the predicate. And what I find interesting is that when you start grafting if then onto the sentence, it's often because you're masquerading. You're pretending that you have that kind of grammatical relationship when you really don't. And yeah. so I find that to be truly fascinating that the more we use conditional language, the less we really mean conditional relationships. <laughs> you know, actually, actually, I think that's a very astute comment. Yeah, yeah, right on, right on on that. Well, I got an idea. This has been a great discussion. I, I really, I really find it fun and informative to talk to you guys. Um, so I hope we can do some more of this. But, you know, why don't we close this discussion with, Bring, coming back to the very sort of base level of conditionals, this is uh, from a, you know, I've seen this in probably a hundred sources.
Uh, you've probably seen it as well. And for the listeners, what I'd like you to do is take a piece of paper and write out four squares. Four squares. And so write them out four squares and then horizontally. And then I want you to put the following inside each of the four squares. The first square, you're going to put the letter E. The second square, you're going to put the letter K. The third square, you're going to put the number four. And the fourth square, you're going to put the number seven. So again, we have four squares side by side, or whatever, four squares. We have inside the four squares in order, E, K, 4, 7. Now, we are given a conditional statement. And, and by the way, guys, we have to accept this as a conditional statement for the purposes of this discussion. Okay? Just to be clear. You know us too well already. Okay, yeah, we're going to do that. All right. <laughs> so here is the conditional. Ready? If, to emphasize it, a card has one vowel on one side, comma, then it has an even number on the other side. So again, if a card has one vowel on one side, comma, then it has an even number on the other side. Now here is the question, the question that will determine the trajectory of your future career. <laughs> every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every year, of every decade, for the rest of your life, but no pressure. Now, <laughs> the question becomes this. The question is to decide which are the minimum cards that need to be turned over to prove that the conditional statement is true. Again, the question is to decide which, not the number, Jacob, which oh, are sorry. the minimum cards <laughs> that, that need to be turned over to prove that the conditional statement is true. Now, why don't we go through these one at a time? We have one card, actually those squares, they're supposed to be cards, okay? Uh, but anyway, so the one with the E, okay? So we have if a vowel on one side, then even number on the other. Do we have to turn that over to know whether the statement is true? What do you think? Yes, no, maybe? Are we giving the audience a chance first? Yeah, let's give the audience a chance first. Take a second. Think about it. But I think we should discuss these one at a time. Sure. I'm sure the audience has thought about it. What brave soul wishes to venture forth, or should I br bravely venture? Because I have the answers anyway. But I, I'm I'm happy I'm happy to venture. We have to you turn over that this one, card. Okay. Yeah. No, we have to turn over this card because our our antecedent, our if statement, was triggered. Right. They said if. There is a vowel on one side. Okay, so we care about this card because it does have a vowel on one side. So if the conditional is going to hold, we need to check the other side to see if the then part of things, the consequent, 
holds as well. So we got to turn it over and find out if we have uh, absolutely, absolutely. So you're going to put your own little heart, draw a heart, okay, over the first one there. Okay. Yeah, he's got it. Okay, so yes on the first one. The next one, K. K is not a vowel. Can you imagine if they had a Y in this? Ah. <laughs> or 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 leave it leave it to the to the people that speak Welsh or Gaelic and a W. Exactly, exactly. All right. So we have K, which for the record is not a vowel. All right. What brave soul? Oh, wait, let's give the audience a second to decide. All right. They've either decided or they're not participating. All right. So who wants to venture forth with this one, the K? Or you can throw it back at me if you want. Because as I say, I can I can do no wrong because I have the answers. <laughs> Go for it, John. This one's you. Okay, by God. Do we have to turn that one over? The answer is no, we don't. Okay. Why do we not have to? It's not it's a vowel. Trigger. Yeah, it's not a vowel. It doesn't trigger our if. Well, who gives a damn, right? You know, it's not a vowel. It could either have a number or not on the other side, right? That would be, like, to use the analogies we were talking about at the beginning, okay, the first one, if stroke, then die. The first one would be fact of stroke guarantees death. This one would be if we have no stroke, then we can't infer anything one way or the other, right? All right. Next, okay, bearing in mind, if the card is a vowel on one side, it has an even number on the other side. We have a four. Let's give the audience a chance and then decide here. All right, with a four, do we have to know what's on the other side in order to know whether the rule applies? Yes, no. I see heads shaking. <laughs> the answer is no. The answer is no, absolutely. Could one of you explain that? Sure, because uh, we have an even number. So if you visualize this in front of you, if we had a vowel on the other side, the condition would hold. If we didn't have a vowel on the other side, then we wouldn't have triggered our conditional and then it wouldn't have mattered. Right. All right, very good. In other words, basically, the fact that we have an even number on one side doesn't tell us what we have on the other side. All right, and the final one is the number seven. Seven, that's one of my favorite numbers. Why, I don't know. That's a prime, isn't it? It is It is a prime, yeah. It's a prime. I, I, it's it probably is. just a prime number. <laughs> okay. So what do you think here? Does this one need to be turned over, bearing in mind the statement is a vowel on one side and an even number on the other side? It's not only a prime, but it's an odd number. Well, yes, no. Do we have to turn that one over? Do we need information? Yes or no answer? Big yes. And yes. How come? Well, here's the problem. If there were a vowel on the other side, then the condition wouldn't hold. That's right. If we had a vowel on the other side, but a seven on this side, then it certainly would not be true that having a vowel on one side would mean an even number on the other side. 
So the answer is, it's the first one and the last one, the E and the seven. And according to the statistics here, okay, I'm going to read this. This is just from a standard logic text. And I've seen this example in so many different formats over the years. But are you ready for this? Only 4% of people got the last one right, the number seven. Only 4%. Don't we have to flip the K over two on that same basis? That one confuses me. The K is not an even number. What if there's a vowel on the other side of that card? Well, I think Jake <laughs> probably has a ready-made answer on that uh, one. He's probably read the same thing I have. You know, it's a it's a good it's a good point, right? And this is a matter of the strictness of the definition that we're talking about. So there's an implied condition there which is presuming that the thing that you have is a number, right? Or presuming that the thing you have <laughs> is a letter. Um, Keith is being very pedantic, and I love it. John, I, I didn't your... get it. When you guys said no to the second one, I was like, what in the world are we talking about? Of course you have to flip the K over. That's not an even number. Well, Keith, let, let me tell you what the statistics say about that thinking. Just a minute. Um, no, I hear you totally. Um, what it says, hang on, I have to hold it away because I don't have my glasses on, but um, I think it says something like over 50% of the people thought you had to turn the, uh, the K over. Turn the K over. So, well, let's look at it. If a card has a vowel on one side, then it has an even number on the other side. Well, so we have a K. What if we had an even number on the other side? It wouldn't make any difference because K is not a vowel. No, but right. if we had a vowel on the other side, it would matter. Yeah, Sorry. what if it were what if what it were if K were on vowel. one side and and e. A on the other side? There you go. E on the other another side. reason. Yeah, That's another reason. So, so the, the the presumption is that all the cards had letters on one side and numbers on the other, which of course we didn't no, state. No, I, I don't think that's true. Just give me a second. Oh, yeah, sure. that's, you know, here's what they say about K. Ready? And what of K? I'm, I'm reading this verbatim. Okay, and what of K? This is being delivered from Olympian Heights. There is nothing to say that a card cannot have letters on both sides. There you go. Yeah. If there's a vowel on the other side, the statement is also wrong. So there you go. There yeah, you go. Have, you know, we have to define our terms. What this what? illustrates for me is that uh, this occurs on logic games all the time where you're given uh, so many logic games of the same sort. And then they give you one that's slightly different, and they just remove that 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 phrase that makes the logic game uniform, and you don't catch it. So here, there might be a dozen examples of these where one side is a number and one side is a letter, and then you get to this example, and they don't say it, and you assume it's true. I find that that's, the, that's exactly how they trick people in logic games. They give you so many patterns of the same thing, and then they break it. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. And that's why when reading information on the LSAT, I think it's very, very important to be a minimalist. All right. When you read mm -hmm. the stuff, all right, this is what they're saying. No more. All right. You know, and, and just kind of work <laughs> with that. It's the only way that I've ever been able to discover to protect yourself from that type of stuff. But, you know, you're talking about a deeper problem, Keith, which is, you know, the repetitive assumption. And then all of a sudden, you know, they give you an answer that doesn't reflect that assumption. 
you know, the, and this 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 sort of serves that question that we, you know, among all questions we see on that Facebook group, one of the ones that comes up the most is, can somebody help me with hard games, with oddball games, with with rare games? And I know my answer and Keith's answer is always stop worrying about them. Worry about the easy games and the medium games, the typical games, because that's 95% of it. Uh, and worry about the hard games when they show up. But you can't drill for it and you can't prepare for it. But this is a really good example of the way in which you can find complexity where it may or may not be there, right? Is that you just have to look, you, you look not only at what is there, but about what assumptions you're making and about what is not there. And you need to have some rigor around the way that you define your terms. And we've developed some logic games questions that help probe into that and so we invite students to contact us about the exact framework we use to make sure that you've interpreted the logic game stimulus accurately yeah yeah you know what this has really been great um i thank you very much for engaging in this uh you know what i think is actually a very a very very difficult discussion uh to have yeah, it shows you how hard conditional relationships are when you divorce them from your intuition. We talk about these cards and we stipulate a conditional relationship and our, our, it becomes so much harder to be principled about the way you think about it. It's enough to drive you to card playing and gambling and stuff. Not so bad. No. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, you know, I, I hope that we can pick this up with... Uh, you know, another topic or topics, uh, you know, as we go forward, but this has really, really been good. And I hope that, you know, those who are listening uh, to this will realize that, you know, one of the things that I think is, is plainly obvious from this discussion is that it's, it's not easy at all, right? It's not easy. And, uh, you know, it's like you can't get all the answers to one source. And notice that there's not even complete agreement, I think, on everything among the three of us, right? I mean, I think we agree you know, with certain basic things you got to understand, but there's clearly, you know, I think not so much diverging, but uh, different, uh, you know, ways of looking at these things. And that's what's important. And you got to figure out, you know, what works best for you. But the one thing you cannot stray from is focusing on the message that they're trying to convey in these questions. What is the message? What are you being told? Why? What's the justification that's being offered for that? And then finally, on the actual LSAT, what are they asking you about that relationship, right? Um, let me close by inviting Keith and uh, Jake either jointly or individually to give your coordinates uh, for your tutoring. Sure. So I, you, you can find me on Facebook, um, either under my name, Jacob is the first name, or uh, my company's name, Nexus Academics, or you can find me at www.nexusacademics.com uh, uh, and feel free to email or uh, send me a message on Facebook. I'm always reachable. I'm pretty easy to find, but if you want to follow my updates, my Facebook page is called Last Call Bar Academy. Okay, and actually, I was interested to see that you were, Keith, I think, uh, rolling out some sort of a pre-law school prep. Yeah, we're, we're working out the logistics on that. I have some obligations this summer that I have to schedule around, but I'm going to do an Iraq writing uh, course that incorporates some torts uh, doctrines into the framework. And so I'm hoping that we get a nice turnout for that. Yeah, well, I think I think that's great news, and I would invite you to uh, 
you know, to make that clear uh, in the group, because for those who are admitted to law school, I think that, you know, that's a tremendous uh, resource and opportunity. And um, so my understanding is, that, though, that you're running joint classes as well. Yeah, we do. We, we do. Um, we do a, uh, a joint class. It's for uh, each session. Each group of sessions is uh, is four classes, each uh, 90 minutes to two hours, depending on how verbose we get. Um, and we and we run those every two weeks. Uh, the current schedule is Monday and Wednesday nights at eight. And uh, if you're interested in those classes, you can reach out to either of us and we can give you more information. That's great. And my impression is that they're they're quite uh, reasonably priced as well. Yeah, yeah, that we, we've been we've been charging one hundred and fifty dollars for all four sessions, all four classes in, in, in one in one series. Mm -hmm. So we have very, office hours, too. We have office hours on top of the classes. I mean, I think the deal is just tremendous, personally. Well, you know, the, the deal might be too good. I mean, one of the things that we that any experienced LSAT teacher knows is the hardest thing is to get people to do the things that make the most sense. <laughs> um, Definitely true. It's sort of, sort of a, a parting comment for me. <laughs> uh, I, I don't have to deal with the consequences. I, I'm, I've been out of LSAT teaching for a long time. Anyway. Great. I really appreciate this. I think this has been a very interesting discussion. And, uh, you know, we can, uh, you know, uh, pick this up.